We've been reminded of our connection with the Lord and with one another on this day, just as the Lord has commanded us. Our closeness to Him through life's journey is so critical for us in terms of our identity, in terms of our survival, in terms of our hope of what is to come. As the Apostle John writes his letter, he begins to address the Christians he's actually writing to in contrast to the false teachers and fraudulent Christians whose lives reveal that their claim to know God is a lie, the believers John is writing he views as for real, as for genuine. They're at different points of their life journey, but what they're experiencing as followers of Jesus points to their true identity in Christ. And their genuine identity is why John is writing them in the first place. Six times in verses 12 through 14 that we're looking at this morning, he says, I am writing you because. So he's not only addressing these people, but he's explaining his method, his reason for writing. What John describes in these verses is what all true believers experience over the course of their spiritual growth. Now, John's words that we're going to read this morning may strike us as overly repetitive, but there are reasons John says what he does the way he does. Repetition not only aids learning, it strengthens what we already know. And second, the the nature of the Christian journey is such that we should never abandon what we learned at the first as we move from one stage to another. It's more organic than that. We develop. We keep building on the foundation. We keep drawing sustenance from our roots. If you disengage a building from its foundation, it falls. You cut off a plant from its roots, and it dies. The, the heresy that was gaining ground, the false teaching gaining ground in John's day, and then we'll become even stronger in the second century, the Gnostic heresy, viewed itself as advanced. Those who taught it and adopted it, they were in the know. They had a higher superior knowledge. They had a basic disdain for the simple. And and in their growth, their so-called growth, they ended up denying even foundational truths of the gospel. We want to always beware of that kind of elitist, I've grown beyond uh, the gospel kind of thinking and teaching, or I've discovered some new kind of thing, and we're going to initiate you into that. The Christianity that's for real doesn't work that way. It's, It's built on firm foundation. It grows from that. It continues to develop that. So, we see that evidenced as John uh, describes our journey if we truly belong to God. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he goes back through the list again. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, 
because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, the way we'll approach this this morning is pretty self-evident from our text. We'll look first at the children. We'll look at the fathers. We'll look at the young men. Now, these words uh, aren't talking about the physical stages of the members of the congregation. It's not talking to those in kids' men and then uh, those that are in the teen ministry and college ministry and, and uh, maybe early uh, prime of life and then, and then to the power company. Uh, that's, not, that's not the way it's uh, dividing here. It's rather talking about s- stages of spiritual growth, stages of the spiritual journey. John is addressing also not just males when he says fathers and young men. He's addressing all believers at these various stages of life. So, first consider with me what he says to the children, those that are, that are new in their walk with Christ. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. And then, in the third part of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, John has already addressed his readers as his little children You recall at the beginning of chapter 2. And for that reason, some interpreters believe that he's continuing to address the whole group that way here. And then he's going to divide them into the fathers and the young men. They point to the mixed order that John uses, children, fathers, young men. Instead of children, young men, fathers, what you would expect if you were talking about chronology, that further suggests this interpretation. I don't know that it's going to make a great deal of difference in the final analysis, but we're going to look at our passage in terms of three different phases of spiritual maturity. Um, And I do that because if we're looking at just this immediate text, that seems to be the development. Um, The fact that we would commonly use uh, children for even those that are older in the faith um, really underscores the fact that we remain children Uh, through our journey. We're still learning. We still need to remember what we learned when we were children. John uses two synonyms for children. Both can be translated little children. In our uh, English translation, we have little children for the first one and just children for the second, but it could have just as easily been translated little children for both. And, And they both use an ending that would be what we call a diminutive ending, like a, and, and to say it in English, you would add little to it. Um, He may just be varying his vocabulary. Um, The apostles did that, just like we do that. Um, But each word does have its own nuance of meaning. The first word that he uses speaks of little children as descended from a parent. And the second word that he uses in verse 13 speaks of little children as under the parent's authority and training. And the parent-child relationship properly includes both. God is our Father, not just through adoption. We are born ones of God. We have His spiritual DNA in us. His, his life in us makes us alive and, and guarantees our spiritual transformation and growth through the indwelling Spirit of God that regenerates us. And as His children, God is also our authority, our protector, our guide. We, we're not running from Him anymore. We are in His family, in His household. And our submission to Him 
is a good thing, and we view it that way, not just because it honors Him, but, but we've come to understand that it also benefits us. Um, that is true of human parents, uh, even with all the mistakes that we human parents make, and God is the perfect parent. So, when we think about relationship to God, we're thinking about the reality that, that we are born again, that we are members by birth of His family, that, that we have His life in us, and we're also thinking about that we are in His household, and He is training us and disciplining us and, and helping us grow, and we gladly submit to His leadership, His direction, His authority. Well, John highlights two great blessings of those in this early stage of their Christian development, and these blessings will continue through their lives. The first blessing is this, in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. Now, some of you have known the Lord for a long time, but I want you to think back to what you felt when you first came to Jesus, and and what was likely the most overwhelming thing about your conversion. And I think for most of us, one of the first joys we experience is the immense relief of knowing that our sins are finally forgiven and that our record is clear, that our conscience is clean, that we're no longer guilty before God, that Christ has paid our penalty, that, that we are not under this the, the tyranny of fear that judgment will fall on us. From now on, Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of God. One of the things that God uses to draw us to himself is to make us just sick of our sin. And, and even as we maybe try to manage it, as we start to realize what it's doing to us, we try to manage it, we try to fight against it, we find we don't have the power to free ourselves from it. Our, our sin is an impossible burden and we can't shake it on our own. But when we come to Jesus, that burden falls from our shoulders. It reminds us of the the picture in Pilgrim's Progress. It's carrying this heavy burden, and finally, at the foot of the cross, it falls. And it does so because Christ has taken our burden on Himself, and He has paid for it in full at the cross. And, And when we our children in the faith, when we've just come to Jesus, this sense of relief is huge. I think sometimes as we we go along, we get a little more cynical, we realize how flawed we actually are, we start to pull that burden back on ourselves, and we start to forget the joy that is ours, the good news, the news that brings joy is the sins no longer are counted against us. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And will you note the the reason for our forgiveness? And this is what's so critical. It's not to be found in ourselves. It is for His namesake. The revealed character, the, the name of God in His person and work. He is the one to whom all judgment rightfully belongs and the one who forgives, redeems, and cleanses and does so on the basis of perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, who takes our place in judgment. I remember one of my boys, not, I guess it had probably been six months to a year after he put faith in Christ, and we were talking, and he said, Dad, I just, 
I just, you know, I, I know I'm safe, but, but I just still have to fight sin so much. Like, what's going on? Like, I, I thought, you know, when I came to Jesus that there would be no battle anymore. And, and he was having to learn that it's for his namesake that we are forgiven. And the freedom from guilt and the freedom from the power of sin is because of what Jesus has done. It's not that somehow that, that we're earning that. It's not that we don't change. Uh, we're going to see that. But, but it is that the ground of our assurance, the ground of our joy, is that Jesus has taken our place. It is his namesake, his character. And John has already referenced this in perhaps maybe the best-known verse in all of 1 John First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is his faithfulness and it is his justice, his character, his namesake that clears our record when we come to him for forgiveness. The second great experience that those early in their their journey of faith experience is found in the second part of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. It's not just that they know about God. They know God. When we have been reconciled to God and the barrier is gone, we enter a relationship with God as our loving Father. Jesus himself led us into this forever family privilege. So not only are our sins gone, God is judge. Now we're also recognizing that the love of God is Father, and we've come to know him as Father. We are forgiven. Our sins are gone. We are loved. He's our Father. And, and we gain these priceless treasures right from the beginning. They are the, the fountain from which all our subsequent Christian experience flows. We, we never get over the fact that our sins are gone. I've been set free. We never get over that. Because as we go through life's journey, there's a lot of battles. There's a lot of temptations we didn't know existed. There, there's a lot of questions we hadn't even heard before. We thought we had all the answers. but then And, and we, get, we get knocked down and we go through this Knowing my sins are gone, so important. And knowing that God is with me as my heavenly Father. He's, 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 not, he's not the judge that's against me. He is the Father that is for me. What family characteristics do you see in your own life that, that would affirm to you that you are born again, that God's life is in you, that, and, and then beyond that, is your approach to life one of, of submission to your heavenly Father? You know, you, you can tell people that are part of, the fam of, of a family, okay? You, you can tell what kids belong to what parents as to who disciplines who. Uh, you, there's just a different kind of relationship between those that are parents and children versus everybody else. Is, is that kind of relationship yours? Do you know you've been born again? Um, do, do you know you're, you're living and, and you want to live 
in glad submission to the Father. And, and all of this because you're rejoicing in the forgiveness that you have because of his namesake. And you treasure actually knowing God. So as I look over the congregation, there are a lot of you that, that don't fall into the first phase of your Christian journey. But, but don't develop into crabby old Christians who have forgotten what you were given at the beginning. You know, the glory days of belonging to Jesus ought not end after a year or two or three. Not, not when these priceless gifts are yours. We are forgiven and we are loved. We are children. And then John addresses the fathers. In verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He repeats himself. Um, I won't make a dumb joke about people having to repeat what they say to older guys like me, but um, I just made it, didn't I? Just fell right into the ditch. Um, Twice John underscores that the fathers, those that are mature in Christ, have have an extended um, that knowledge to which they were introduced as children of the faith when they first came to Christ. They know him. They have known him who is from the beginning. So the language is very similar to what was used of the children. That second part, they know him, this father. But, but he says, you have known him who is from the beginning. You, they have found that God their father does not change through all the twists and turns of life. Human beings change, they fail, they fall away, they betray you, they lie, they falter, they die, but God remains. He's the steady rock, he's the safe place, and he always has been, and he always will be. John Stott, in his brief commentary on this book, says, time hurries on, but in all generations, they find a refuge in him who from everlasting to everlasting is God. They are already consciously living in eternity. It's another way of saying what the psalmist, what Moses says in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One of the privileges of knowing God for some length of time and and reaching the stage where someone could say you're one of the fathers, you're one of the spiritually mature, is that, you know, there's not many new things you're you're experiencing Um, you've seen a lot of battles, you've seen a lot of difficulties and a lot of changes, but you've also seen that God remains the same. This ongoing fellowship with God marks those that are mature in Christ. It steadies them, and they in turn help steady others. 
Their communion with the eternal one anchors their souls, and those around them find comfort and strength in their shadow. Now, you may have known the Lord for a long time. It doesn't mean you're mature. What will mark you if you are mature is, is, this, is this steady faith knowledge of God. You have come to know the one who's from the beginning. And all the swirl of stuff that's out there can't shake you from that solid foundation, that relationship with God through it all. Maturity in Christ treasures all the more what we've learned at the beginning. We sing together songs that reflect this. Still, my soul, be still. Do not forsake the truth you learned at the beginning. I think sometimes in our culture, we're always so worried about being relevant and so worried about being up to date, we forget what never changes. And we want to hold steady. In fact, Proverbs 3 that we saw earlier in our meditation, we're told to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, in all your ways, literally know Him. And He shall direct your paths. He, he will make a way even when there's not one. In all your ways, everywhere you go, everything you encounter, know Him. Do it in the context. Do it from the vantage point of being close to God. So, this would, this would encourage us, above everything else that we're trying to protect, to protect our living knowledge, our communion, our fellowship with God. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter what position you have attained. It doesn't matter what achievements you've made. If, if you lose hold of your actual fellowship with God, like, like you and God, you don't split up through the day. You stick together. If you lose that, the rest of it doesn't really matter. If, if you can live life in terms of Christ being with you all the days, if you can live life in terms of, God, I, I belong to you, uh, you're from the beginning, you never change, and I never want to go anywhere apart from you, and you, you can just walk your path with the Lord is with me. This is why you fear no evil, right? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Okay? The Father's have learned to practice this. They know him who is from the beginning. And so they're not freaking out about everything that changes and that swirls around them. But our Christian experience is not just forgiveness and fellowship. It is also a fight. And the reason the fathers are so steady is in part in that God has been with them through the battles of life, and they have found him faithful. So John addresses the young men underscoring the battle that a genuine Christian faces. So the young men, I am writing to you, young men, 
because you have overcome the evil one. Now, the enemy is the evil one. The description, evil one, points to his inherently harmful character and career. He hates, injures, destroys people. And as an angelic being, he's far more powerful than we are as just human beings. And that could be overwhelming to us. We know that we're no match for Satan in our own strength. But the Scriptures call us to resist him in the faith. So I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. In Christ, we are strong, so much so that we can actually conquer the devil and his schemes. You have overcome the evil one. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but it it may strike you as a little bit like wishful thinking or a little bit of bravado to say, you know, you know, we know that young men, you know, you know, strong and they, they, they go for the, the win. Is this actually, they're just, um, hubris. Is this just like arrogance? Is this being too self-confident? Well, the confidence is not in them, but, but I would like to argue particularly if you're struggling with how powerful Satan seems, I would like to argue from Scripture that you have overcome the evil one is the experience of those that belong to Jesus and do battle for him and in his power. Listen to some cross-references. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, so adversary, The devil, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, hide away and stick your head in the sand. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I've actually encountered situations where when you talk about spiritual warfare and you talk about Satan's pushing against what is good and right and having to do battle, I've seen people kind of cock their head like, okay, this guy's, he's a little dramatic here. Like, ah, yeah, right, Satan's after you. Kind of like the old comedian said, the devil made me do it. You know, they kind of had that look. But listen, We've got, to, we've got to get real on this. Satan is the evil one, and he is prowling, and he is fighting. You've, you have to resist him. If, if you're pretending like the enemy doesn't exist, you're a fool. Okay? Not everything that happens is because of the devil. In fact, a lot of the devil made me do it. It was my own sin made me do it. Okay, But... But we do face an enemy. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's in our submission to God that we can actually do the resistance to the devil. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, look, we sense that in a world where we have so much access to what's going on all over the world. We're, we're often overwhelmed with how powerful evil seems to be, and that it seems to be more than at an individual level, but, but it seems to be a whole campaign of evil. And Paul says, I mean, he, he tells us that at the beginning, like this shouldn't be a surprise. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able, you have the power to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. In fact, he's going to say in, in chapter 3, this is the very reason that Christ came. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, to render inoperative the works of the devil. Part of the affirmation, the confirmation that you actually belong to Jesus and that you're in him is that you do battle against Satan and you do overcome. The reason you overcome is not because you're so awesome, it's because Christ is. In him we're more than conquerors. Now verse 14 is going to tell us their secret. I write to you young men because you are strong the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So you see the, the general description, you are strong. Then it tells us why the word of God abides in you, and then it gives us the result. You have overcome the evil one. In other words, they are in the Bible, and the Bible is in them. God's words are life. They give solid footing. Those whose feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace are those that can do battle royal with Satan. The earthly battles that Jesus fought, he consistently goes to the scriptures with the words, it is written, or have you not read? He does so during Satan's temptation in the wilderness. He did so when facing enemies that were trying to trap him and to destroy him. Going back to the word, back to the word. What has God said? What has God promised? And holding fast to that. John 5, 38, in contrast, he says to, to Pharisees, religious leaders who nonetheless are not, do not belong to God, he says, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Notice with these young men, the word of God abides in you. So these, you, you can practice religion without the word of God taking up resonance in your heart to where it's changed you. You, you can do all kinds of religion. The question is, have you made God's word yours? Is it abiding in you? And the evidence then for these men is you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So in the history of the church, whenever the church gives renewed attention to the word, you see health and revival and awakenings. When neglect of the word grows, you see backsliding, corruption, weakness, and death. And often it is in the name of being more educated, of coming to a new truth, of understanding more, of being more sophisticated. It's all a lie. When I start leaving the Word, when I start neglecting the Word, it's not going to make me stronger. It's not because I'm smarter. 
I'm, I'm actually destroying my ability to survive. Jesus, John 6, 63, says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is part of what our, our slogan, life by the book, is getting at. It's, it's not saying so much life by the rules, although we want to be in submission to God. It's saying there's life. There's life in the Word of God. And as we give ourselves to it and we, we're in it and it's in us, it gives us strength to live life, the life of God flowing through us so that we survive and that we actually overcome the evil one. Luther, in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, said it this way, did we in our own strength confide the battle our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who this may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The Reformation happened because of a return to the Word of God, and God in His providence had brought more attention to the Word, and we'll get all into that, but that, that was what was happening, and it was more than a Reformation, it was awakening. Millions of people came to know Christ, and it, it would happen again in subsequent uh, centuries, but it, it was this Word, the, the, the weapon of His truth is how we overcome. Now, you, you may have in your home, you may have stashed away somewhere some kind of weapon for self-defense. What will happen if you've never learned how to use it? The weapon is pretty much useless to you. You've, you've got to be able to use the weapon for it to be useful to you. And the word of God is given to us to instruct us, but it is also the sword of the Spirit. It is part of the armor of God which, with which we fight battles for the Lord. In Christ, we're more than conquerors. So fight the temptations. Fight the lies. Overcome the evil one by having the Word of God abide in you. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Take up the sword of the Spirit and learn to wield it well. So as we look at John's words to these believers, he counted genuine believers, is it clear to you that you belong to Christ? Are, are these the experiences of your journey Forgiveness in Christ, fellowship with God the Father, the one that is from the beginning, and fightings against the evil one. Never forget how fundamental these are to your life in Christ from beginning to end. As a child in the faith, as a mature saint, as a strong overcomer, 
in the midst of the battles of life. The journey leads home. The good shepherd will get you there. Make sure you're connected to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for its encouragement. Help us, God, to revel in the joy of of freedom from our guilt of sin, the forgiveness that you grant us. Help us know you better and better, and may our confidence in you as the one who is from the beginning grow our firmness and steadiness. And, And Lord, we pray that as we go through the battles, the battles we face on the inside and on the outside, that you would ground us in your word and that it would, it, would, it would change, it would renew our minds. We'd be transformed by the renewal of our minds as, as the word of God changes our very thinking patterns and the way we approach life and thus gives us the ability to overcome even someone so strong as the evil one, Satan himself. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for being our redeemer for being our father, for, for being our rescuer, for being our hope. And God, we pray that we'll walk with you all our days till we are finally safely home. For it's in Christ.